0: Matthew Huey, the author of Whitebound, Nationalist, Anti-Racist, and the Shared Meanings of Race, is the featured author of this installment of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Hi, I'm Vershawn Young, and I hope you enjoy this lively exchange with the author of one of this year's most provocative studies on race. Listen in. Hello. And welcome to New Books in African American Studies. In this installment, I'd like to begin with two questions. Is it possible that both white anti-racist groups and white nationalist groups draw from the same old white racial framework? And is it possible that they share more rhetorical similarities than differences? To help answer these and other questions, we have on the show with us today, Matthew Huey who is an associate professor of sociology and affiliate faculty in African-American Studies at the University of Connecticut. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, White Bound, Nationalist, Anti-Racist, and the Shared Meanings of Race, published by Stanford University Press in 2012. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Matthew, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I was born in Los Angeles, California in the seventies, um, migrated to North Carolina with my family in, uh, the late seventies grew up there in the, uh, kind of mid South in, in North Carolina, went to school at UNC Greensboro, um, went to Ohio university for my master's degree and then the university of Virginia for sociology for my PhD. Um, now I'm at the university of Connecticut. In general, my research is concerned with the relationship between how people understand and make meaning of race and how those understandings rationalize and legitimate unequal racial relations or racial inequality or just racism in general.
0: Mm-hmm. And you have uh, several other uh, books and edited collections to your credit besides the one we'll be discussing today, White Bound. Would you mind telling us a, a little bit about those?
1: Sure. Um, I guess first off, one of my my first books was a co-edited volume with Dr. Gregory Parks. He's a professor of law at Wake Forest University, um, and that was 12 Angry Men. Um, that is a collection of first-hand accounts of various black men's, um, I guess I'll say, run-ins with the law and other authoritative forces. Um, in which they were profiled, in which they were unfairly profiled and went through the linger. Um, we have stories from congressmen to uh, working class folks, so it runs the gamut. I think one of the powerful things about that book is it shows the commonality of their experience. That whether you are from a higher socioeconomic class or from a privileged family or have a lot of education or not much at all, that still racial profiling is endemic in the United States. Uh, in the so-called post-racial nation. Uh, Another book that I did with, uh, edited with Gregory Parks is called The Obamas and a Post-Racial America, in which we have a collection of sociologists, political scientists, social psychologists that address um, how and to what extent and to what extent it did not um, did the election of of Barack Obama to the White House and having a a black first family in the White House changed race relations. Did it, did it not? in what in what ways did it? Um in what ways have those uh changes been um, short lived? hmm
0: And there seemed to be an obvious um, relationship between your previous works and the current one. Um, The the ones that you just described seem to highlight um, what some might call the experiences of of African-Americans or the African-American racial experience in America. Uh, But this book uh, talks about whiteness. Uh, How would you describe the relationship between between these sets of books? I think. You know,
1: in in the North American context, and especially within the United States, whiteness and blackness have been intimately intertwined, Um, especially when we look at the formation of the one-drop rule, whiteness has served as a, as a signification system for purity, for superiority, for normality, even conflated with what it means to be truly and authentically American. And then so doing blackness has served as a bookend to that, has often been counter juxtaposed to whiteness as impure, as anti American, as inferior, et cetera. And so whiteness and blackness often eddy off one another, um, and people take their cues about where they should live, who they should marry, who they should date, what jobs they should have, what food they should eat, et cetera, based on this racial classification system in, in, in the U.S. that really
0: is by black and whiteness. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to write this book about nationalists and anti-racists or white nationalists and white anti-racists uh, and their shared meanings of race?
1: So I think three larger questions kind of motivated my interest in, in the subject. Um, the first one is, uh, a very powerful assumption that I think a lot of academics as well as a lot of lay people make. And that's that we assume that they're fundamentally good and bad people, um, that there are the, the good guys and the bad guys, right? I and mean, this is a long standing trope again in the West so that I, would, uh, that we see in our, in our cowboy and Indian movies of, of yesteryear all the way up to how we make sense of contemporary, uh, political debates and uh, trials and, and so forth. So we're always looking for the, the good people in in a, in a debate and the bad people in a debate. In terms of race, this often plays out, which, who are the bad guys? Who are the racists, right? Are they the, the Don Imuses or the or the Zimmermans from the, the Trayvon Martin trial? Or who are these bad racist people? And once we decide who the bad racist people are, then we kind of give a pass to this, the anti-racist forces, the supposedly anti-racist forces that are challenging them. And I found this dynamic, this common way of understanding uh, politicized racial debate a bit more than some this, this dichotomy, I think, obscures more than it reveals, and it paints a picture in which these supposedly good and bad people are fighting over things, and one must win, and one that's fundamentally better or moral or, or more superior than the other. And I just found that um, to be a bit of a of a, of a falsehood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm challenging that. I, I came to challenge that kind of common moral duplicity, if you will. Um, the second is that there's a, been a great deal of academic work in the social sciences coming from political sociology, survey research, um, resource mobilization work that shows that, people with different levels of education or different political orientations or people that have different, uh, resources, um, often will hold different political views or leanings or worldviews, especially toward race. And this dovetails with my first point. Um, so if we look for the right people, quote unquote, the people that are supposedly liberal, that have more education, that live in the Northeast, that, that, um, subscribe or possess all the common dynamics that statisticians tell us are are the good people, then we can also find the supposedly racist people as well. And so there's a lot of work in social sciences that I think unintentionally essentializes and reifies these two different types of groups. And I wanted to challenge that as well. Mm. Um, And again, the, the third reason I came to write the book is just my overall interest, again, in really delving into the link between how people make meaning of race, how people come to understand their own racial identity, others' racial identity, and what they decide to do or how they decide to behave in regard to their race and their place in the racialized social system, and then how that understanding plays out in terms of rationalizing
0: and legitimating um, the racial order. hmm Given your um previous work, how would you respond to someone who might um uh challenge uh your um ethnographic pose in the book um, You state that you neither defend nor demonize either group, the white nationalists or the white anti racist or its members how 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 do you respond to that? how would I respond to somebody challenging that the stance that I take there? Yeah, that, that you say that you neither defend nor demonize mm-hmm. either group. Well, I think it, it would be
1: really easy. I mean, it, you know, I guess, well, let me back up for a second. There, there's been a lot of good work in previous years coming out of sociology and the social sciences that have really started to delve into illuminate and criticize Worldviews and assumptions of white nationalists, of the Klan, of neo Nazi groups, etc. And this is very good work, but at, a, at, a, at the same time, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. It's really easy to criticize the overt nationalists and anti race, or, or the, the overt nationalists and, and, and racists of the world that are so forthcoming in their bias and hatred and, and so forth. And it would be easy to just say, well, these people are bad and these people are wrong and they're hypocritical and, and so forth. But, but that work has already been done. And there's also been a strand of work over the past decade or so that starts to look at the white anti racist movement of the proverbial, you know, so called good good white people that are fighting the good fight for, for racial justice and, and so forth. Um, and I find a lot of this work kind of delves into this romanticized, Um, look at the proposed psychology behind what makes white people um, pick up these racial justice fights um, and and paint them as kind of saviors or, or heroes, even if unintentionally. And so my aim was to avoid both of these and to simply compare both groups to see what type of assumptions they both shared. And if they did share some assumptions, which they did, how those assumptions came to play out in their everyday lives and in their activism. And I try to show in the book how common assumptions about how the world works, what race is, what whiteness is, is in fact so hegemonic and so deeply ingrained in our culture and our social systems that it becomes so normal that both groups, despite these completely antagonistic political objectives, aims, and goals, end up be producing some of the same white supremacy that one group
0: at least would would be trying to work against. Mm -hmm. What uh, as you engaged in your research uh, you said that you attended at least once a week for over a year uh, groups uh, meetings of both groups um, meetings of the national uh, white nationalists and uh, anti-racist group. What was the most interesting or Unexpected discovery that you made attending those meetings. You
1: know, one one instance uh, pops out of me. It it was early on when I was studying one of the white nationalist groups, and you know, this this group was was uh, what I call a coat coat and tie white supremacist organization. They weren't the Klan of yesteryear. They're incredibly polished and really worked hard to get their message out about white nationalism and tried to present that message as a completely rational and legitimate response to issues of immigration, to issues of affirmative action, of racial inequality, and so forth. And so one of my early meetings on, I was meeting with one of the uh, more senior people in the organization, and they were uh, playing with their child. And they were saying, you know, Matthew, um, I love my child more than I love someone else's child. And that doesn't make me a bad parent. In fact, I'm supposed to. This is his argument, right? And um, he goes on to say, our work here in in, in our organization is the same. We love our own, speaking of, of white people, more than they do other people. And just like that of a parent, you know, that's not wrong. That's the way it's supposed to be. So they had these, these talking points and these rhetorical devices um, always at the ready, and were able to really take people off guard. I think a lot of people who confronted them or, or wanted to confront them were expecting some people to spew hatred and to say horrible things, but they were so well-practiced and smooth in their articulation of white nationalism that they they took a few people, I guess, uh, off guard, including myself early on, um, in their presentation themselves. So I think the contemporary white nationalist movement and and various white supremacist movements are working very hard to try to couch a lot of their rhetoric and a lot of their objectives in the language of diversity and multiculturalism and love and acceptance, rather than that of, say, the rhetoric of, of Jim Crow from the 1940s, 50s, or 60s.
0: Hmm. What would you say um, is the ultimate goals and aims of both groups? Well, they have completely
1: antagonistic goals and aims. Um, The, the white nationalist group that I studied, uh, ideally what they want is for uh, the nation, the United States, or a portion thereof to be entirely for uh, white people. They want a return to policies of of separate but equal, and we know they were, in fact, unequal, Um, but they want to return to that in which they fundamentally believe that different racial groups are biologically and culturally incommensurate, that it only does white people, black people, Latinos, Asians, Native Americans, whoever it is, it only does those people harm to interact. This is what they believe. And so they believe that every group should separate, have their own social system, their own economy, their own government, et cetera, um, in order for everyone to be able to be on their own and succeed because they see multiculturalism and diversity and integration and a kind of pluralist democracy all as a liberal pipe dream that was made up and will never work. So their objective is to work toward those aims. They're they're sophisticated folks. They have lots of education. They have lots of resources. They lobby uh, politicians, local, state, and federal. Um, They're very well entrenched with other conservative groups and think tanks and have quite an influence in uh, the circles that they move in. The anti-racist group um, is completely different. Um, They believe that uh, racism and prejudice are things that are learned, that are taught, that the United States and many nations across across the globe are unequal, and that white supremacy is a kind of normal unfortunately normal social arrangement that benefits those that pass the white uh, to the expense of, of people of color
0: mm-hmm. and they
1: see this as wrong as anti-democratic as immoral as something that is arbitrary and was purposefully uh, at times designed, created, and maintained for, I would say, the the legitimation and um, supremacy of of certain white people. They they think this is wrong, and it's people who are white that believe that they have privileges and powers that are unfairly earned. Uh, They try to Work against that by educating other people about this uh, uh, about the social system and how it is the white supremacist social system to sometimes direct action with confronting um, state and local authorities um, and engaging in civil disobedience, so they have completely different aims and nothing
0: hmm and yet with these completely different aims um, that you Unearth and point out some startling similarities, at least in their rhetorical approaches.
1: Yeah, I do, and I, and I tried to show that it wasn't just all in the book, um, although I center a lot on their on their narrative and their discourse that they use, show a lot of the actions that they also commit. Um, mm-hmm. One of those major similarities, for instance, would be that both groups really seem to believe in, in what others and myself have called the, the culture of poverty that there are African-Americans, Hispanics, Latinos, um, a racial underclass that simply has bad values, That they believe that these people are somehow dysfunctional, pathological, broken, and cannot pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, even if they wanted to. So for the nationalists, this understanding is, is just simply more fodder and rationalization for why the White Nationalist Project is a good thing. People need to separate. White people need to move away from the dysfunction, and everyone will be off, uh, better off being separate. For the white anti-racist, they see this as their job to kind of fix, so they see themselves in some ways as racial saviors, right? And this belief in black dysfunction or brown dysfunction and pathology. Means that they have the answers as white people and that they can go into these communities and help solve some of the problems that plague um, non-white communities, such as drugs to joblessness to whatever you want to call it. Ironically, both groups miss that many of these same problems also exist in white communities, and often lower socioeconomic white communities. So they often conflate this culture of poverty or that of race remaining in fact and extent of empirical reality is more of a problem with resources and than even uh, it's race. But by both groups buying into this, this worldview that people of color are in some ways culturally essentially different than white people, um, they can use that understanding and marshal that understanding toward two different political goals. But because of that shared implicit understanding of how the world works, often come full circle to rationalize
0: and, and reproduce that same social arrangement. Mm-hmm. What accounts for this shared worldview? I think it's it's the
1: ether that <laughs> that that is a part of a social society. I mean, it, it's the uh, it's the same common sense, and I put that in scare quotes, right? The same kind of hegemonic, common sense understanding of the world that rationalizes, for example, um, I'm not, I may be speaking out of turn here, I'm not a legal scholar, but, but that rationalizes the recent um, Zimmerman verdict, that here you have a young black male who is unarmed, yet the opposing attorneys would say that the sidewalk was somehow a weapon. Um,
0: there's,
1: there's this young man who is a child. He's, he's a child. And he's unarmed, and he's, he's walking home, and he's, he's stalked by a person that sees him as a threat, simply by virtue of his black masculinity, I would argue. Um, and it, it, he is stalked, he is followed some type of fight and altercation, too, and the person who stopped him had a gun and shoots him, um, and, and mortally so. And this is a tragedy, but it is a tragedy that's been replayed over and over and over again. And, and the fact that a jury can rationalize that and see Zimmerman as, as working within the confines of law, and it's a problem that we have a law, I think that, that enables that, but that sees following someone disobeying law enforcement orders, not to uh, getting into an altercation or shooting him as okay means that on some level you have to see the person who was shot as committing the law. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that's a big problem in that we, we live in such a world, um, it's like the old Superman cartoons in which there was a Bizarro world, right, where left was right and up was down, right. It's like in in terms of race relations, we live in a Bizarro world, right, in which in which the victims here, the people that are followed, that are profiled, that are that are killed, are somehow seen as the aggressor. Mm-hmm. Right? And and Zimmerman's um, you know defense team went to great lengths to try to show that Trayvon Martin was the supposed thug, right. And even what the, what the judge allowed in the case um, in that, you know, previous social media postings and uh, supposed marijuana usage and all these other things were allowed in the case. But none of Zimmerman's prior um, social media things and any of his prior run-ins and, and inflammatory racial statements were allowed. And, and, and so this is the problem. Even though Zimmerman doesn't qualify for many as, as white, for many he, he did pass as white in this trial. And this was a trial of whiteness versus blackness. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's that same cultural logic. It's that same sense of whiteness as innocent, as whiteness as pure, as whiteness as virtuous, as moral, as of having the answers, as of whiteness as being able to surveil and follow and shoot and to be violent, um, but yet not be called violent, instead be called self-defense. hmm that, that is the same logic and the same, the same body of knowledge and worldview that both these groups draw from. Right? It, it, it's the same reservoir of meanings that we all drink from.
0: This conversation um, uh, leads me to uh, another question that I think uh, uh, needs to be underscored at least, uh, and it is actually uh, raised and responded to um, in your book, and that is how <laughs> How could a, someone who seems to be um, a white racist um, or who might exhibit what some people um, might consider racist um, ideologies and actions exhibit those same actions uh, or words and yet claim to be anti-racist? Uh, or at least, at least non-racist. Okay. Um, making a distinction right. between anti-racist and non-racist. I'm, I'm thinking about several examples in your book. I'm thinking for one, uh, about the, um, Alexandra Wallace example that you, uh, used in your book and the responses, um, to, uh, uh, her, um, uh, uh, YouTube post, et cetera, and, and others. How could someone use to be this, what I would call distinctively <laughs> or blatantly critical of people because of their racial background um, and culture, but yet claim to be non-racist.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it, it, it's amazing that, that so many, even overtly racist groups, I mean, the, the United Clans of America today says that they're a non-racist organization. <laughs> and they say this with a straight face. And so when even you have the most, I think, well-known and notorious white racist terrorist organization in the history of the United States claim that it is not racist, again, we live in a bizarro world, right? Um, I think people are so wedded to the notion that race is a thing of the past, that structural inequality is a thing of the past. And if there is racial inequality, it's because people didn't try hard enough. It's their own fault type rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And so that allows other people, I think, on the one hand, while claiming that we live in a post-racial nation, right, of pointing toward the White House and saying, see, there's a black man in the White House. And there's a black family in the White House of looking at the attorney general and saying, see, there's, there's Eric Holder. Right, There are these black faces of power. Kind right, of pointing to that on the one hand and saying racism doesn't exist anymore, and then at the, on the other hand and speaking out of the you know other end of their mouth, will say the most virulent um, and and antebellum style um, racial rhetoric, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think only those two things can exist in which we we have a culture that has blinded ourselves to understanding that that racism. It's a structural and cultural thing and not so much a psychological thing. I think it's where a lot of people go wrong and fall into this good versus white trap that I spoke about earlier, that we're constantly looking for or assuming what the psychology of a particular person is. Do they have good or bad or racist or anti-racist thoughts? And we just don't know that. We can make guesses at that. We can use certain things as a proxy for that, but we just don't know. As a sociologist, I avoid the pop psychology there and instead look at what people actually say and do.
0: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: And when I look at that, then I have no need to, to guess or, or play this kind of game with who the good and the bad, you know, proverbial white people are. Instead, I look at, at people's actions and whether or not they use these, these um, rubrics that are all around them. Right? So when, when Alexander uh, uh, Wallace, you know, went on this anti uh, Asian rant on YouTube, I think she thought that she would find people to say, that's right. I agree with you. So, so Asians in the library, they need to be quiet, they need to do this, they need to do that. And she did find a lot of that. But then when people spoke out against that and said, That's wrong, that's very typical, you're generalizing from a couple experiences, you're taking things out of context, you're you're just flatly exaggerating and making stuff up, she then, just like the Zimmerman trial, portrayed herself as the victim.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That she was she was a white person just calling things like it is and not being allowed to speak. Mm-hmm. So the only time now that in this supposed post-racial world that race really exists is when white people are oppressed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and recent polls have actually shown this that more and more white people feel as though they are being oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that comes out of the fact that, that white supremacy isn 't what it used to be. that uh, There are more voices, more egalitarian voices, more progressive voices that will challenge at least some aspects of white supremacy and Now white people can 't get away with saying everything all the time when they want to, and when whiteness is is so superior that you can 't do everything you want to all the time, maybe that does feel like oppression. <laughs> You know, <laughs> to, to some people, you know, right. that I can't do what I want all the time, right? But I, I think that's the, the the supremacy of whiteness is actually based on a on a fragility, right? That that you claim to be so great, and when you cannot reach the heights of that greatness, you 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 claim victimization, mm. mm-hmm. right? So, so the so-called post-racial world is really about, I think a small and very small drop in the level of absolute white supremacy that once existed in this nation, that our racial landscape is changing a little bit. We do have a black person in the White House. One could argue whether or not they're kind of the black face of white empire or not. Um, but but that is a uh, step that I think many of us thought we'd never see in our lifetime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that is progressive in, in some sense. But white supremacy is is incredibly resilient. And I think that's what allows different people. I'll come really full circle from your, your original question, but I think that allows people to claim to be anti-racist or
0: non-racist and still say the most racist thing. Matthew, what do you think is the most, or what do you want to be um, the most significant intervention your book makes?
1: Well, I'd I'd love it if people
0: actually read it.
1: Um, (laughs) I'm sure uh, they
0: will. I'm actually teaching it in the spring, so. Oh,
1: that's great. That's great. Um, You know, book publishing and and book writing is a a strange thing now that I'm becoming a a bit more familiar with it. Um, I notice this every time I go into someone's house that, that I see less and less books and bookshelves and I see more and more DVDs and more and more computers. And. And hopefully people are, are buying ebooks and those things too, but I think we're becoming less and less of a reading public. I could be wrong here i'm I'm um, going off of of what I know to be the data but um, I do hope you know people read it, but I hope that people get that my major point here is to show that um, I guess show the old, uh, empirically show the old, uh, saying, you know, that the path to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, that, that my book is not so much about critiquing the white nationalists, because that work has been done. Mm-hmm. It's to show that even the people that say or have the best of intentions can still fall into the trap of white supremacy because it is so normalized. And so I think if we realize that white supremacy is so normalized in our culture and in our laws and in our society, that, that it's that proverbial ether in which we all are, are walking around in, um, realize that we really have to overtly and explicitly critique it and begin a new civil rights movement. I think the civil rights movement that we commonly talk about was the unfinished revolution. That um, it only went so far, and that it got some legal changes. But ever since the civil rights movement, there's been a backlash against it. And we're in the midst of an incredible backlash right now. So the, the key, you know, um, jewel, the the crown jewel of the, of the voting rights act was just, a, um, taken out by, by the Supreme court, mm-hmm. you know, in, in our supposed post-racial era. Right. And, and, when that was in place, I think in like an eight-year time span, the Department of Justice blocked over 700 or 800-some changes that many Southern states would have done that would have resulted in, in Jim Crow-style um, voting procedures. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think just two hours after the Voting Rights Act was gutted, Texas instituted some some crazy plans. North Carolina has, you know, my home state, um, a tar heel at heart, N- North Carolina used to be a kind of progressive state in the South, Now it's been taken over by the right wing and has gerrymandered the state and and is instituting more kind of draconian uh, laws that are going to stop people of color and the lower class from voting. Mm -hmm. You know, these are real issues that are taking place and it is done under the face of of post-racialism, but it really is white supremacy.
0: Mm -hmm. At this point in the show, we usually ask authors to read a portion from the book. Would you mind doing that now? Oh, sure. I'd uh, be happy
1: to. So, um, I'll just read a little bit from the introduction. Um, start on page three here. Um, so, I, uh, I'm going to start off by talking about NEA, which is uh, National Equality for All. That's the white nationalist group. This is a pseudonym that I use. And WRJ, or Whites for Racial Justice, which is the anti racist group. I came to NEA and WRJ with the interest of comparing how these two groups make meaning of white racial identity. In many ways, these two organizations are everything one could expect. They act, talk, and look quite different. They are near perfect examples of how white racial identity can be marshaled toward antagonistic political projects. While they may seem strange and radical to many observers, They both appeal to fairly normative and logical arguments to shield their activism. They both spend a great deal of time defending who they are and what they do from outsiders. They detest jokes about their activism. They work very hard to be taken seriously. They both worry about the future of race relations and white people in the United States, if not across the globe. Like many whites today, both white nationalists and white anti racists see themselves as autonomous individuals making independent choices. That reflect their authentic desires and true selves. Yet these choices, desires, and selves are anchored to racial categories and meanings that structure how they negotiate the world. It is important to recognize then that these actors do not engage in their activism in isolation. Both the white nationalists and the white anti-racists craft their understandings of the world and who they are as white people in that world out of available meaning and shared expectations. Members of both organizations use the dominant understandings of race today to continually recraft and reform both their individual and collective white racial identities. They then use those identities as potent resources and rationales for how they should marshal their activism toward the world's problems.
0: Very nice. and. Uh I should ask you right uh what are you working on now? Oh too many things. Um <laughs> I guess one uh one project
1: that I've that I've almost wrapped up is uh and this dovetails with uh some of the things I, I spoke about today, is uh a project that uh I'm calling the lightsaber film. Um this is a, a book length project that will be published by Temple University Press in 2014. Um and here I, this is going to be a book where I examine three different data sets about what we would commonly call the white savior shell. And by that I mean, um, help or freedom writers or dangerous minds or dancing with wolves or, or avatar, what, what some people call dancing with aliens, right? <laughs> in which you have a, a, a white hero go into an indigenous or, or non-white space and, uh, befriend them and somehow become, uh, their, their savior in a way if not saving themselves literally, but saving their their legacy. Think of um, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise and, and, and other such films. Um, even based on a true story, Glory, um, about the um, Massachusetts 54th and, and Colonel Shaw. So I, I take a look at these films in, in three different ways. I have a chapter that does a content analysis of 50 of these films over the last 25 years. So I look for the common denominator and say, go through all these things. I then have another chapter that looks at how film reviewers themselves make sense of these films. And there I, I call film reviewers in general an, an interpretive community. Because I find that, like the white anti-racists or like like the white nationalists, they're drawing from shared and dominant understandings of race and often make sense of these films in, in interesting pattern ways. So I showed some of the patterns and how uh, film critics who we generally think of as individual experts using their um, judgment to make informed aesthetic arguments. Um, actually, are relying upon kind of common sense, racialized tropes in order to make sense of these films. Mm-hmm. So I have 2,990 some reviews of those same films that I um, look at in the previous chapter. And then in my last chapter to come full circle, I have interview data with people that have watched some of these films, as well as with different focus groups that have watched these films, to see how people themselves understand it. So I do the the production of the film, the content, the gatekeeping and distribution of it, and then the audience reception of it. So the working title of the book is The White Savior Film, Content, Critics, and Keeps.
0: That sounds very interesting. I can't wait to read that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I hope it'll be good. I hope it'll
0: disappoint <laughs> it's, uh, it's
1: fun to write, although I got really tired of
0: watching Lightsaber film. <laughs> so we can look forward to that book in 2014. Yes, yes, you can. Well, thank you so much, uh, Matthew Huey, for joining us on new books in African American Studies. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Matthew Huey's book, White Bound nationalists anti Racist, and the shared meanings of race is published by stanford university press 2012 i hope you enjoyed our interesting and provocative discussion and that you'll go out and get your copy of the book today